Hello and welcome to World at Law, a podcast from Carter Perry Bailey discussing the law, business and the business of insurance and reinsurance law. I'm Robert Harrison, consultant at CPB, and we'll be exploring issues arising from a variety of topics. Today we have Joseph Sutton, also a consultant at CPB. Joseph's expertise is employment law, and he'll be taking us through the minefield that is employment law in a post-COVID world. Hi, Joseph. Hello, Robert. It's very nice to be with you, albeit via a computer screen. It is. Dare I suggest there's a bit of fun in this, and hopefully for the listeners as well. That said, it's a very serious topic. So what areas do you propose covering today? So some of the areas that I thought it might be helpful to cover bearing in mind that this is a huge, huge topic and that COVID-19 has really kind of changed the world in so many ways. But what I thought we would focus on is firstly the coronavirus job retention scheme, also known as the furlough scheme. What is it? How has it worked in practice? We can then look at what will happen to the scheme as it's wound down. It's due to run until the end of October, but it will be kind of gradually reduced. The next topic, returning to work after furlough, considering some of the issues that may arise in that context, bearing in mind that in um, many cases, workers will have been off work for well over three months, five months, I suppose, by the time the scheme is um, wound up. The next topic, working from home, some of the legal and kind of practical issues that may arise from that. And what if there is no work? to return to. And I think there we're talking about redundancy, really. And I'll be considering some of the key features of a fair redundancy and process in this context. And lastly, I'll be considering the future of work. Quite a nebulous topic, perhaps, but I'm going to try my best to summarise how I see the post-pandemic landscape. That all sounds quite comprehensive in itself. Perhaps a, a good place to start then is, what is the furlough scheme? So the furlough scheme, also known as the Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme, but I think the furlough scheme is easier to say, was announced by the Chancellor Rishi Sunak at the end of March, but became effective from the 1st of March, so it took retrospective effect. And the scheme is operated by HMRC, and its main purpose is to safeguard millions of jobs by effectively subsidising the wages of those employees who would otherwise have been laid off as a result of the restrictions imposed by COVID and the impact on the economy. Under the scheme, employers can apply for a grant covering 80% of uh, furloughed employees' wages, capped at 2500 a month. And unbelievably, there are currently 9 million employees and over a million businesses benefiting from the scheme. So a quarter of the entire UK workforce uh, at a cost uh, to the Treasury of, um, I think, on average, £14 billion a month. As I say, the scheme is due to run until the end of October. It's been extended twice, and it'll be gradually wound down over the coming months. As you say, an astonishing economic feat, and one only wonders just what the after-effects of it are going to be. But what can we say in terms of the businesses that can apply under the scheme? Well, pretty much any business can apply under the scheme, provided that they meet three very basic criteria. So firstly, you have to have a business with a UK pay-as-you-earn payroll scheme that was registered with HMRC on or before the 19th of March. Secondly, you need to have enrolled for um, pay-as-you-earn online. 
And thirdly, you need to have a UK bank account. But provided that you can satisfy those and three very basic criteria, then you um, qualify for the scheme. You don't even need to be a UK business. And in terms of the employees from their angle, are all employees eligible? Yes, again, it's pretty comprehensive. So all employees on all types of um, contract and potentially um, qualify for the scheme. So whether they are full-timers, part-timers, fixed-termers, agency or zero-hours workers, they all potentially qualify for the scheme, as do company directors and um, salaried members of LLPs. It's important, of course, to recognise that this is strictly employer-employee relationships, isn't it? I know a number of people have observed that self-employed and other businesses are excluded or have other arrangements. We are specifically referring to the employer-employee scenario. With 80% of furloughed employees being paid, I think there's a maximum for £2,500, whichever is the lower, have employers had to top up to 100%? No, so this is at their option, really. So, in other words, employers can certainly choose to top up to 100%, but they're not obliged to do so. You know, some have, some haven't. And there's nothing inimical in the relationship there that the employee can oblige the employer to make that top up? No, although that said, placing an employee on furlough is a matter for agreement between the employer and the employee. So in fact, unless there is already a provision in the contracts of employment allowing the firm to place employees on furlough, and in most cases there wouldn't be, because I think for many it's quite a novel concept. These matters have to be agreed and agreed in writing between the employer and the employee and are therefore a matter of consent. Yeah, yeah. And then look, turning to the bigger picture, how on earth is the government going to pay for all this? <laughs> well, the short answer, I suppose, is by borrowing a lot of money. Quite cheaply, it has to be said. But the figures are you know, clearly eye-watering. As I say, that you know that the, the scheme has um, already cost the Treasury, on average, fourteen billion pounds a month, uh, according to the Office for Budget Responsibility, and it's estimated that uh, it will have cost sixty billion pounds by the time the scheme uh, closes at the end of October, and that, in fact, is a forecast that was revised downwards from an original um, estimate of eighty-four billion pounds. Um, so it's kind of twenty-four billion pounds cheaper than originally uh, forecast, but still a huge amount of money. You see, the the scheme is is going to be wound down, and I know that very much a movable feast with various announcements being made. Until yesterday, uh, they were being made on a daily basis. But in terms of the scheme going to be wound down, when do you think that will happen, and what will it mean for businesses and employees? So the scheme is already, in fact, closed to new entrants. Uh, and it closed on um, the 10th of June. So that was the last day for anyone who hadn't already been furloughed to be furloughed for the first time. So if you're an employer and you've missed that date, I'm afraid it's too late to furlough anyone for the first time. Apart from that, for now and um, until the end of July, the government will continue to pay 80% of uh, furloughed employees' wages. From the 1st of July, employers may, um, although they're not obliged to do so, bring back furloughed employees uh, part-time whilst um, continuing to furlough them for the rest of the time. And that's um, you know, clearly a, a move designed um, to introduce um, some flexibility and to help uh, companies reintegrate uh, furloughed employees back into the workforce. 
as I say, kind of bearing in mind that many of them will have been off work for many months. With effect from the 1st of August, firms will have to start contributing towards the cost of the furlough scheme. So from the 1st of August, firms will have to pay employer national insurance contributions and pension contributions on furlough pay. From the 1st of September, employers must pay 10% of furloughed employees' pay, and that will increase um, during October to 20%. Right, so from July, firms will be able to bring employees back part-time and to furlough for the rest of that time. What will that mean in practice? Well, in practice, it'll be for the, for the companies, for the businesses, to choose what hours and shifts those uh, part-timers will work provided that no employee is um, furloughed for less than one week a month. Um, But as you might imagine, there will be some difficulties in the way that um, furlough pay and working pay are then calculated. Yes, I I can see that the burden on the employer there is going to be to calculate quite a difficult set of payments to employee and scheme. Yes, you're, you're, um, you're absolutely right. So there are a number of different pieces of information that employers will need in order to kind of work out how much to apply for under the furlough scheme and how much to pay employees for the day's work. So they will need to know, uh, among other things, well, firstly, they need to identify the claim period, which usually will be the payroll month. So um, uh, the 1st to the 31st of July, for example, they will then need to consider whether the employee or the employees in question are uh, on a fixed rate of pay uh, or whether their hours and pay vary. They'll then need to consider you know, what, what is the reference salary and for that purpose they'll need to factor out bonuses and tips. They'll also need to consider what are the employee's usual working hours, what hours have been worked and what hours have not been worked. They will need to identify the furlough cap, which, as I say, is is either 80% of salary or um, 2,500 a month prorated as necessary, whichever is the lower. They then need to multiply the um, furlough pay by the number of furloughed hours and then divide by the number of usual hours. (laughs) And it will be for, um, for HMRC to pay employer NICs on um, furlough pay and um, to pay the uh, pension contribution in relation to the furlough pay. Uh, And it'll be for the employer to pay for the hours worked. I've tried to summarise that as best I can, um, but you can probably see that it's quite a complex and involved calculation. And for businesses already spending every God-given hour trying to, to stay above water, you can imagine that some businesses are likely to find this level of complexity too much, even if they have an accountant. Uh, And I expect that many businesses will simply continue to furlough full-time through um, July and August and thereafter consider layoffs. Yes, it's it's clearly complex, but a a level of complexity which they will, will benefit from if they're prepared to tackle it. Uh, clearly, there's a, a, a finite number of of factors to bear in mind, and they do well to uh, seek what assistance they can to make sure that they take advantage of the scheme in, in a way that then doesn't come back to bite them at a later date. Moving on, of course, one of the things you've hinted at there is the possibility of there being no work to come back to. I think we probably need to discuss redundancy in the face of this problem. 
Yes, you're, you're right. I think the sad reality, uh, unfortunately, is that with over 9 million employees currently on furlough, it's almost inevitable that there are going to be some probably um, you know, quite large scale redundancies as the scheme is wound up and um, when it eventually closes at the end of October. I think there was a recent um, survey undertaken by um, people management, and um, they spoke to, to about 500 HR professionals. And the survey found that 42% of employers expected to have to make redundancies or, or more redundancies when the furlough scheme ends. And um, an even higher proportion, 59%, said that they would have made up to a quarter of uh, furloughed staff redundant if the scheme had not been introduced. Um, so I think very sadly that there are likely to be some uh, redundancies as the furlough scheme is wound up. And indeed quite unfair uh, repercussions. If you've been on furlough for the last three months and aren't, you're already at a disadvantage when it comes to redundancy selection. That's hardly fair. Yes, I think that is right. And standing back from that question a little bit, redundancy is, is clearly one of a number of potentially fair reasons for dismissing someone. That said, in order for any redundancy dismissal to be fair, the employer has to establish, firstly, that redundancy was the real reason for dismissal, and secondly, that a fair process was followed. Now, in most cases, the employer is likely to have very little difficulty in demonstrating, particularly in the current climate, that uh, the reason for dismissal is redundancy particularly if they're making kind of large-scale redundancies. Uh, and obviously, if the business is um, closing altogether, that's a pretty clear-cut case. But in addition to the reason, there does also need to be a fair process. Uh, and I think that's really what you're alluding to when you say that kind of furloughed employees are really at a disadvantage in terms of selection, because in a sense, the selection has already occurred. Furloughed employees are already off work and are most susceptible, I would suggest, to then being selected for redundancy. Uh, and I think there's a risk here that some employers will have fallen into a trap or that they may fall into a trap if they automatically select employees for redundancy based purely on the fact that they were furloughed. And I think it would be a mistake for most um, firms to take that approach. Uh, and that's for a, for a number of reasons. So firstly, the question of whether being on furlough would be a fair basis for selection for redundancy will depend on how those furloughed employees were chosen in the first place. And if those employees were chosen after having followed an equivalent but fair process, then uh, the risk is probably reduced. But if they were selected perhaps on the basis that they were vulnerable for health reasons, or if they had childcare responsibilities, then there is the potential at least for discrimination claims if they are then selected for redundancy effectively on the same basis. Furloughed employees have just as much right to undergo a fair redundancy selection process as anyone else. And automatically selecting employees for redundancy purely on the basis that they were previously furloughed is likely to give um, rise to a number of problems. If staff were furloughed because they are shielding for health reasons or because they have caring responsibilities, 
subsequently selecting them for redundancy is likely to amount to um, indirect discrimination. There is a duty on employers to try to mitigate the effects of redundancy, and it may be arguable that employers have a duty to retain an employee on furlough as a means of mitigating the effects of redundancy rather than terminating before the furlough scheme concludes at the end of October. Um, So that also needs to be borne in mind. And of course, finally, apart from the duty to consult with employees on an individual basis, Where there is a proposal to make 20 or more redundancies at any one establishment within a 90-day period, the employer will have a duty to engage in collective consultation and to hold employee elections. And these steps would need to be completed before the employer has complied with its legal obligations. Okay. well, I guess on a brighter note, talking of those millions of employees who have been furloughed, and indeed many millions more, including us, We've been working from home for months now. How do you feel that that is working out for business? Well, anecdotally, my experience, having spoken to various clients and HR professionals, is that the whole kind of working from home, working remotely experience has worked out a lot better than many had hoped apart from perhaps overcoming some uh, initial kind of teething problems. I mean, not every employee, of course, is um, set up to work remotely. Not every employee may have um, remote access. And of course, there are many other employees with childcare responsibilities, particularly with uh, the schools closed, who are less able to work at home. Uh, But I think the overall experience has been a positive one for most professional services businesses. There are a bundle of questions here relating to the sheer capacity to be able to work from home, things like the intellectual capacity of the individual in in turn to to cope with an IT environment, which is perhaps more intense at home than it is at work without having access to IT, the supply of IT materials by the employer to the employee to facilitate that. If you're not set up to work from home, I think there are some employers, well, not maybe some, I think every employer must, in his or her darkest moments, have a fear that all the employee is doing is sitting in a hammock and saying they're doing, they're doing a lot of work. So is efficiency, is that something which is being monitored and can be monitored in a properly objective sense by employers? Well, clearly with employees working at home, you know, reduced visibility might make it harder for some employers to monitor workforce and productivity. And it will mean, therefore, that it's all the more important, I think, for businesses to have systems in place that allow them to assess performance objectively. And that will clearly be easier in some lines of work and in some professions than others. So in a sales role, for example, it'll be you know, re- relatively easy to get a firm handle on sales figures. But where uh, the work product is perhaps somewhat less tangible, I think this will present uh, a challenge for employers. Uh, and I think in turn, this will probably lead through to employers um, having to review their recruitment uh, policies as well. I mean, I think the sort of employee that may be suited to a home working or remote working environment is perhaps not the same sort of employee or the same kind of personality that would be suited to office work. So I think there may be some consequential changes as well. 
But uh, I mean, in terms of the employer's duty to facilitate home working, the government's advice uh, since the end of March has been that um, employees should work from home wherever possible. And in line with that advice, the government's guidance is that companies should take all reasonable steps to help people to work from home. And principally, they should ensure that they have the right equipment. So an appropriate, correctly set up workstation, allowing them uh, remote access to work systems. Well, that neatly, I think, leads on to your your final area of discussion, which is perhaps the most speculative and one which I think a lot of people have indulged in, and that is, what does the future of work hold post-lockdown? <laughs> That's a very good question. I don't have a crystal ball, I'm afraid. It's hard to remember what life was like before lockdown, and this pandemic really seems to have had an impact on almost everything, the way we live, the way we shop, the way we socialise, the way we spend our leisure time. So it would be surprising, I think, if there weren't some long-term changes to the way that we work. For one thing, no business, I think, will want to risk suffering this level of business disruption, or in some cases, interruption again. So I think many businesses will be asking themselves um, you know, some of the following questions, some really fundamental questions. You know, who are the key people in our business? What if any one of those people was incapacitated or unavailable for any length of time? Who would run the business? Is anyone who might need to work from home for any length of time actually set up to do that? Are there functions or processes that can be automated? And financial services and um, banking, perhaps, is um, an industry sector that was uh, a little bit ahead of the curve, as was law. But there may be other professional services, firms that are somewhat behind the curve. Do we need a physical office at all? I think many businesses, um, as I say, have been quite surprised, pleasantly surprised at how well the whole remote um, working experience has gone and are seeing it as something of a sea change. So, for example, the um, group uh, CEO of Barclays, Jez Starley, is um, recently quoted as saying that the notion of putting 7,000 people in a building may be a thing of the past. And even before lockdown, I think UBS was um, thinking about moving out of expensive uh, city centre offices. Martin Sorrell, the former head of WPP, who now runs um, S4 Capital, the advertising guru, said that his companies um, spend around £35 million on property a year and that he'd much rather invest that in people than expensive offices. Uh, And it may be that he'd rather invest that money in certain people than others, but nonetheless you get the point that the world of work, I think, will change um, quite radically. My own view is that many businesses, uh, perhaps the vast majority of professional service firms, will make working from home the default, and that large kind of warehouse-like open-planned offices that have become common in, in some industries will become a thing of the past. Well, it chimes with one of my pet thoughts for some time. That seems very strange that uh, huge numbers of commuters go into large offices in cities around the country and they sit at a desk which they could equally sit at at home. There's a warning shot there for pension funds, if nothing else. Well, thank you, Joseph, for a thorough and compelling discussion. I've really enjoyed going through that, as complex a topic as it clearly is. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this podcast from Carter Perry Bailey. We hope you've enjoyed it and that it's provided some provocative thoughts. We welcome feedback and how to provide this and to listen to other podcasts can be found on the website at cpblaw.com.
So it's just to, to say goodbye from me, Robert Harrison, and goodbye from Joseph. Goodbye, everyone. Stay safe and well.